Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, middle schoolers, you are dismissed. If you are uh, between the grades of 6th through 8th grade, you are invited to go with Pastor Joe out the back to your class. Um, hey, we're going we're gonna to dive into the scriptures together. I see a few new faces. Let me just say uh, welcome again. You know, you've been welcomed already. Let me, just, let me uh, say that again. Welcome. We're so glad that you are here. My name is Philip Pattison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Twin Oaks. And I do hope that you are blessed by your time here with us. Um, we're we're going to take this time and we're going to dive into the scriptures. We're going to be in John chapter 2 today. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can go and turn there. Um, while you're turning there, can I just say very quickly, uh, last, so I'm a little under the weather. Uh, still, um, I'm, it's, there's some stuff kind of lingering. So if I have some hacking fits, please bear with me. Um, it could get a little ugly today. And so I apologize. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me say this, though. Um, last week, for those of you who are here, I actually, I never thought this day would come. Uh, I dreaded it, but, but about, about uh, first about Saturday night, about 6 o'clock, I called uh, Joe Newton, and I said, hey, I just, I cannot, I'm not going to be there tomorrow. There's just no way. I, I was shaking all I'll spare you the ugly details, but it was not pretty. Um, and uh, I had my notes, and I said, I said, Joe, let me send you these notes, man. I need you to cover for me tomorrow, uh, and this is last Sunday. Three, four hours later, he sends me a note and says, Philip, I just came down with what you came down with. It's not pretty. Sunday morning, so I'm, I'm all throughout the night, I'm thinking, okay, I just got to make this happen tomorrow and just hope that I get through the, um, the time. About 7 o'clock on Sunday morning, I end up calling Steve McGriff, one of our elders here, and asked if he could um, lead last Sunday, and he graciously, graciously uh, stepped up to the plate, and, and I, from what I hear, just did a fantastic job. And so I wanted to take a second. <clears throat> I just wanted to take a second and say thank you to you, Steve, publicly. Um, and I... It's great to have, it's great to know, I was telling Glenn this this morning, it's great to know that Twin Oaks, that the, the health and the success of a Twin Oaks gathering does not rise and fall on, on the presence of one person or two people. Um, we're a family here, and this isn't about me, this isn't about Joe, it's not even about Steve, okay? Um, this is about Jesus Christ here in the midst, and, uh, and if, if he's here, um, then, then, then we know that we're, we're here for something of substance. And if he's not here, we could come up here. I could have this great, charismatic, just, um, you know, knock it out of the park uh, message. And if he's not here, we're wasting our time, right? And so we've been praying. That's my prayer been, has been all this week is that um, as I prepare this message to get today, that first and foremost, that Jesus Christ is present in this room and that he is active in each one of our hearts. Um, so actually, before we dive into the scriptures, let's go, to the, let's go to the Lord and let's ask him that one more time. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we can be here to gather. We thank you for the opportunity to have your word at our fingertips. Um, we pray now, Lord, that as we open up your scriptures and we read this together and we talk about it together, Lord, that your words would be um, uh, spoken clearly to our hearts and that you would help us to respond in faith. Holy Spirit, please move. Please move in power. And we ask for your mercy this morning. We ask that you would show us your favor and do something great in every single heart in this room. Take us one step closer in, in intimacy and love and obedience uh, to you. Help us to see clearly who you are, that we might love you more, that we might serve you uh, to a greater degree. We thank you, Lord, for this time. Be here and move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're looking, <coughs> we're looking at John chapter 2. We're in verses 1 through 11. So far in our, in our study through the series of the Gospel of John, we've been about, we're about, I think this is our eighth week into it now. We've taken a real in-depth look at the first 18 verses 
of, of uh, John 1. We looked at the prologue. It took us a while to get through there, but we were able to cover a lot of the major themes that we're going to see throughout the book of John. And then last time we were together uh, and looking in this, in this uh, book, we looked at G- uh, Jesus' first calling out of the disciples. Today we move to John chapter 2 into the first chapter of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus is about to move into the public light for the first time. And the way that he does it is astounding. It's, it's unbelievable. This is a familiar story that we're about to read together. Um, but I'm hoping that, that by the end of their time together, you'll see that there is much more here than meets the eye. Okay? So let's read this together. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Filled the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Um, I'll be real honest with you guys. Everybody's kind of familiar with this story? Heard it once or twice before? (coughs) Excuse me. Um, I'll be honest. I've never really quite understood the significance of this story until just very recently, and maybe until just this year. Um, This has always seemed to me a very to be a very bizarre way of Jesus kicking off his public ministry. Because here's how I've typically seen, here's how I've typically seen uh, this story. Okay, Mary, Jesus, the disciples are all hanging out at a wedding. Uh, Mary gets word somehow that the wine has run out. Maybe, you know, scholars think that maybe she was a close friend of the family, maybe a distant relative, because somehow she's, she finds out that the wine has run out before it's become public knowledge, right? And so she finds out that the wine has run out. So she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, do something. And then he says, woman, okay? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Okay, what does this have to do with me? Uh, I'm not ready. It's not my time yet. It's not my hour yet. And she essentially says, don't argue with me, Jesus, she says, don't argue with me, Jesus. Servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And then Jesus, his hand seemingly forced by his nagging mom, begrudgingly gives in to what she asks him to do, changes the water to wine, the party rages on, and then Jesus somehow has moved into the limelight. Now listen, doesn't that, think about it, doesn't that sound like a really weird and a clumsy way for Jesus, the most influential person in the history of the world, to move into the spotlight. Doesn't that sound like a very clumsy way to kind of stumble and kind of be pushed in by his mom, right? Jesus is 30 at this point, okay? He was kind of pressured in by his mom to get into the, to the limelight. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. It, it can't be what happened because that flies in the face of everything we know about Jesus. So listen, we've got, we've got some people with some kind of marketing backgrounds in our congregation. We, well, 
take it a step lower. We've got some people with common sense in our church, okay? And if you have common sense, I think you're going to know this is not how it went down. Because, look, if, if you, when you unveil, okay, you're in marketing. When you unveil a new business or a product or a new venture or some new movement, when you unveil that for the first time, your first public presentation, your first public statement, you're meticulous. You, you, you are very calculated at how you're going to unveil that, aren't you? You're, you're, going to, you're, going to, you're going to think through every angle about how you're going to present that new venture. You've thought through how and where and when you're going to expose this new movement, this new venture, this new product, this new business. Do you follow me? Do not think for a second that God didn't do the same thing. Don't think for a second that God did not do that. Jesus' hand was not forced by his mom, okay? He's... This is, this is when this is Jesus' first sign where he began to reveal his glory. This is his first inaugural public statement, his public presentation. This is a defining moment for Jesus as he steps out into the limelight for the first time and he shows what he's all about, what he's come to do. This is a defining moment. Remember, at the end of this book, at the end of John, John tells us that there are a whole host of miracles, a whole host of things that Jesus did that were not written down, right? Remember, he says that. But John handpicked very specific events in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And he put them, he compiled them and put them in this gospel so that he could most clearly paint a picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That means there are no throwaway stories in John's gospel. There's no throwaway stories here. There's no filler. This is not just some random miracle that Jesus did to get his nagging mom off of his back. There's much more here than meets the eye. Verse 11, which I just read a few minutes ago, verse 11 tells us that this is Jesus' first sign. John doesn't just call this a miraculous deed, changing water to wine. He says this is the first sign. That word, he's saying this is this is painting a picture. It's pointing to something. This is a live action parable. This is a parable. It's an acted out picture. It tells us some important realities. And I'm only going to look at three today. I think there's actually more to this that that Jesus paints here. But he paints a picture of three very important things in this sign. He says what he's come to bring, how he's going to bring it, and how we're able to receive it. That's what we're looking at today. What did Jesus come to bring? What, how did he come to bring it and how we're able to receive it? So first, let's look at what, what did Jesus come to bring? We'll we look again at our story. Jesus has just called in chapter one. He's just called his first five disciples, right? He's called um, Andrew and John. Those are John the Baptist's disciples. He swiped those from his cousin, right? He just took Andrew and John, and then he, Peter joined in, and then Nathaniel and Philip joined in. And then several days later, these five disciples and Jesus travel to a little town called Cana, and they attend a wedding together there with Jesus' mom. And weddings, as you've probably heard, uh, in that day were an, were an even bigger deal than they are today, right? People from all over the region would come together. And these big, you know, wedding festivals would happen They'd probably just once or twice a year. These were massive ordeals. Um, <clears throat> they didn't last for a few hours, not even for a full day. Weddings in that time would last for a full seven days. Seven days. Okay? Now, the, the key to a good wedding festival, guess what it was? Wine. 
All right, wine is what transformed a wedding from a kind of a stuffy ritual or ceremony to a party, to a celebration, to a festival. There's an old rabbinical saying that says, where there is no wine, there is no joy. Okay, where, the, where there is no wine, there is no joy. And it was the groom's job to supply the wine, his family's job to supply the wine to, to, to satisfy everybody, not just for, you know, a day or for two days. Seven days straight, they had to provide enough wine. Now, we don't know how, we don't know why, we don't know the circumstances behind it. All we know is that the wine ran out, okay? We know that the wine ran out. Now, uh, this happened just a few days into the wedding, about halfway through or so. This would have been a social Disaster. I don't think that we in our culture quite, quite comprehend what this would have been, but this would have looked very, very poorly on the family. It was, really would have sullied their reputation. It would have been disrespectful almost for the, for the family not to have prepared properly to feed and serve their guests. It also would have looked bad on the bride's family because the groom didn't, didn't live up to what they were supposed to do. This would, this would have been a social disaster for that family. Mary hears about it again. I told you somehow she's got some in with the family. Mary hears about it. She goes to Jesus. She asks him to do something about the situation, and he does. Now, I'm going to say this again because I don't think I can stress this enough. Please hear me. When I finally began to realize that Jesus' hand was not forced here by his mom, but that this was an intentional, first, public statement by Jesus. There are these, all these great spiritual realities that began to pop out from, from what happened here. Again, any first, any inaugural public presentation for a great movement by a great movement leader is going to be calculated, it's going to be definitive, and it's going to clearly portray what the movement is about. Think about any inaugural address that you've heard. They do everything in their power. They, they, spit and they pour over every word that is spoken so that they can best clearly portray their platform, clearly define their platform. This is what this movement is about. And this is what Jesus is doing. Now, with that in mind, if he's, if he's as his first step forward into the limelight, if he's going to clearly portray what he is all about, what this movement is all about, think about what he does. He could have done anything. He could have done any number of miraculous signs. He could have healed the sick. He could have walked on water. He could have raised somebody from the dead. He could have preached the sermon to end all sermons. But he didn't. What did he do? He created 150 or so gallons of great wine to keep a party going. That's what Jesus did. That was his first step forward. Why would he do that? Why would he choose that to be his defining moment? What he's all about? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus came to bring a wedding. Jesus came to bring feasting. He came to bring celebration. He came to bring laughter. And he came to bring joy. He came to bring the good wine. He came that we might experience limitless, all-satisfying joy. That's the mission of Jesus. Where there is no wine, there is no joy. He brought the wine. There is joy. He came to bring the joy. Gosh, in our culture, we've, just, we've missed it. Christianity is often seen as anti-joy. That's the, that's the reputation we have. That's sometimes what we have in our own mind. We often, there, there are some of you in here who think that Christianity means just say no, keep your nose clean, go to church, work really hard, sacrifice the fun that life has to offer. But hey, you know what? If you work really hard and you in enough self-denial, then hey, at least you'll escape eternal damnation at the end. That's the extent of your Christianity. But you've missed it. You're missing it. 
Jesus Christ came to bring limitless, all-satisfying, everlasting joy. For many of you here, your faith is not, you don't see your faith in, in Jesus Christ. You don't see Jesus Christ as your gateway to joy. You see him, you see your faith as a chore. It's a burden that sits on your shoulder and it nags at you, just making you feel guilty. You've seen God as somebody who is robbing you of fun rather than giving it. By the way, there are some people in here, potentially, who have yet to say yes to Jesus because you're afraid of what you're going to miss out in life. I'll tell you, as somebody who has run after things, there, there are people in this, in this church, I think, who probably have kind of run the gamut. People who have run after food to make them feel good. How's that worked out? People who have run after drink. People who have run after sex. Any, anything else that the world has to offer, start asking around how that works out. When you run to these other things to give you the joy that you're longing for, joy that you are, you're desperately need in life, anything apart from Jesus, it will not satisfy. Every other source of wine will eventually run, run dry. But every person on this planet is looking for that wine. I think this wedding in Cana serves as a great parallel to life. Every other party, every other wine, every other source of joy will eventually run dry, will eventually run out. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something that we have grasped at in the first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something, something has evaded us. In another place, C.S. Lewis says, he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. Put on your thinking caps here. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. For example, a baby feels hunger. There is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. There is such a thing as sex. If I find within myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the only probable explanation is I was made for something in another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy this desire, that does not mean the universe is a fraud. Probably the earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. You see what he's saying? Every person on this planet longs for joy, longs for contentment deeper than we've ever experienced from anything in this world, anything on this planet. But Jesus Christ showed up on the scene that day at Cana in Galilee. He showed up, and he said, I have come to bring the joy that you lost all those years ago. I have come to bring the good wine. I have come to make all the sad things come untrue. Where I turn, uh, where my feet pass the desert's bloom. Where I turn my face, the trees laugh and dance and sing for joy. Wherever I go, there is joy. Joy unspeakable. 
Isaiah says this about Jesus. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen? Jesus came to bring feasting and celebration and laughter and joy and relationships all centered, all centered around a wedding. Um, Remember, whose responsibility was it that day to provide the wine for the wedding? It was the groom's, right? Because the master of the feast, you know, tasted the wine and was really pleased, called the bridegroom up, and he said, man, you saved the best for last, right? It was the groom's responsibility to bring the wine, but the bridegroom failed. He failed. For whatever reason, he failed. He didn't plan properly. He ran out. Jesus is the provider of the wine. Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. I don't think it's any coincidence. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus' first step into public ministry was at a wedding. Think about it. Beginning of time. History began with a wedding when when God uh, delighted in uniting a man and a woman together in Genesis. Right? And then John tells us in Revelation 19 that the consummation of history is going to be a wedding. Right? Revelation 19. He says this. He says, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to, that's us, by the way, the bride. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. We are told all throughout the Bible, all throughout, read the Old Testament. We're told all throughout the Bible that God is not simply interested in, in relating to us simply just as a king relates to his servants, or even as a shepherd to the sheep, or even as a father to his children. We are told again and again and again and again that God wants to relate to us as a husband does to a wife. Think about that. He, he wants to know us and love us and unite with us as profoundly and as deeply and as intimately as a husband does to his wife. So when Jesus provides the resources for that wedding banquet that day, I believe what he's saying is this. I believe he's saying, I am the giver of the good wine. I am the fountain of everlasting joy. And I am the ultimate bridegroom who will come one day and claim his bride. Um, So how does he do it? How does Jesus bring the good wine for the wedding? This is where it gets interesting. All right. Back up for a minute. Mary asks Jesus to do something about the wine problem, okay? Look at his response one more time. He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, okay? He doesn't call her mom. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, it's almost as if he's a little put out by the statement or a little emotional, a little stressed, a little tense. I've read about a half a dozen sermons on this passage this last week in anticipation for this morning. I've read about a half a dozen uh, sermons. And one of those pastors that I read suggested that perhaps Jesus' mind is elsewhere at this, point, at this point because think about it. 
He said, he said when, you, when you think about what weddings are like for many folks who are not yet married, especially for those who are engaged. We've got a couple of engaged people in our congregation, right? If you're engaged and you go to a wedding before you, get, you, know, before you have your wedding, you go to a buddy's wedding, what are you actually thinking about? You're thinking about your wedding, right? You're not really thinking about them, if you're really honest. You're thinking about your wedding. You're looking at everything just a little bit differently. Like you're looking at the centerpieces a little differently. You're looking at, you know, the order of service. You're kind of analyzing their song selection, and you're looking at their food. And, you're, and, you're, and what's going through your mind is not just like picking it apart. You're also thinking about, oh, i got to remember to do that. Oh, and you're thinking about all the things that it's going to take to get to your wedding day. You're thinking about what is it going to take for me to get to my wedding Perhaps, this, this pastor suggested, perhaps Jesus is thinking about his wedding and all that it's going to take for him to get there. When I first read that, I thought, well, that's a bit of a stretch. How are you going to pull that from those 11 verses? That seems like a little bit like you're grasping at straws. But listen, the more that I've thought about this, the more that I've prayed about, the more that I've read through this, the more that I've studied, I'm slowly starting to catch on why that pastor suggested that. Look here. When Jesus says, woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. When any time, any time John quotes Jesus as saying, my hour or the hour, any time he uses that phrase in the gospel of John, every time without exception, he's always, always, always referring to Jesus's hour of death, his crucifixion. So so think about that now. With that understanding of what he just said there, think again about what Jesus just said to his mom. Okay? Mary comes to him and says, Jesus, they're running out of wine. This is going to be terrible. Everything's falling apart. Do something. Jesus turns to her and says, woman, why are you bothering me? I'm not ready to die yet. That's what he's saying to her. What, what a bizarre statement that Jesus would make. He's saying, woman, don't, why are you bothering me with this? I'm not ready to die yet. It's not my time to die yet. How do you make sense of a statement like that? This pastor writes, he says, there's only one explanation. Jesus is clearly lost in thought. He is deeply stirred in the profoundest depths because he sees what has happened. And even his mother's request as a metaphor for his entire career, he sees the devastation that is about to happen. He sees the humiliation that is coming. And he sees, yes, this party has not delivered. The wine runs out, and he is the one who has to pick up the pieces. And he knows what it will cost him to pick up the pieces. Do you understand? I'm going to read that again. There's only one explanation. Jesus is clearly lost in thought. He is deeply stirred in the profoundest depths because he sees that what has happened, and even his mother's request, he sees it as a metaphor for his entire career. He sees the devastation that's about to happen. He sees the humiliation that is coming, and he sees, yes, the party hasn't delivered. The wine's run out, and he is the one who has to pick up the pieces, and he knows what it will cost him to pick up those pieces. Do you see now Jesus' distress? But look here at what Jesus is about to do. Look, he's going to take, he's going to take this opportunity at this wedding, and he is going to give a live action parable of what is about to come. Look at what he does. Don't miss this. Jesus points to six stone water jars. Okay, these six stone water jars that were set apart to be used for the rites of purification. Now, these stone water jars, these six jars, were used for ceremonial washing. Anytime, whenever the, the Jews would, would go in to worship God, they would wash themselves first. And the washing was meant to, to be a symbol saying, God, we are sinful and we need to be cleansed before we can come into your presence and be accepted by you and be embraced by you in love. 
We need to wash ourselves because we are sinful, we are dirty, and we need to be cleansed before we can be accepted by you. So Jesus points to these six stone water jars that were used for the ceremonial washing, and he says, pour water into them up to the brim, and then he changes that water into wine. Do you see what he's doing? Are you, you still are you there, are you there yet? Over and over and over in the Gospels, Jesus is going to refer to his blood as wine. Think about it. Think about the Last Supper. He holds up the, the, the cup and he says, this cup, this is the blood of my covenant. This is the blood of the covenant. This is the wine. Jesus' first statement, his inaugural public statement, his first sign to the world, defining what he is all about, what his movement is all about, is a picture of the gospel. He is painting a clear, definitive picture that he has come to bring the ultimate purification. He is the way. It's his blood. That's how we're going to be cleansed before God. That's how we're going to be cleansed. It's not, you don't wash yourself with water. You wash yourself with the blood of Jesus Christ. This isn't the first time that water's changed the blood, is it, in the Bible? Remember Moses in Exodus? Moses changes the water and the blood in the Nile and the Egypt. It's part of God's judgment on Egypt. This time, where's that blood coming from? It's coming from the veins of God himself. This time the blood would come from God himself. He was going to bear the judgment. We've said this over and over and over the last few weeks. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not, Jesus did not come into this earth to bring judgment. He came to bear the judgment. He didn't come to take our blood. He came to spill it. 1 John 1, 7 says, The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Revelation 7, 14 says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Think about that statement. How do you wash something in blood and have it come out white? You ever thought about that statement? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You wash our garments in blood and they come out clean. Because Jesus' blood cleanses. John 2, 1 through 11 is about a clear, as clear of a picture of the gospel as you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Listen, please hear me. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. The bridegroom in Cana at that wedding failed. He failed. And he was facing shame and he was facing humiliation. But Jesus, in his mercy, in his compassion, stepped in and provided the wine. And the wine was taken to the master of the feast. And the master tasted the wine and he was pleased. And he brought the bridegroom forward in front of him and he gave him the credit for what Jesus did. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So do you see why Jesus responded the way he did? You see why he had the distress that he did? He was sitting at this wedding surrounded by the revelers and the celebrators and the family and the friends, and he couldn't help but, thinking about the, but think about the wedding of the lamb that was to come and what he would endure to get there. Edmund Clowney said this. He said, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. I'm going to read that again. It's just that good. Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Jesus, our bridegroom, came to bring the good wine, everlasting, all-satisfying joy, and he accomplished it through the shedding of his blood as purification for our sins that you and I might know and enjoy God. 
So the last question we ask as we close is this. How do we, how do we respond? How do we respond? Well, for some of you, you've been here with that with us for, for a month or two or three or years, and you've been investigating Christianity all this time. You have yet to have crossed that line. Maybe, just maybe, today is the day. You've seen that the joy that this world has to offer is lacking. The feasts have left you wanting. The wine has run dry. And you're ready today to meet the Lord of the feast, the giver of the good wine, the fountain of everlasting joy. You're ready to say yes to Jesus, to betroth yourself to him, to say, with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. To make your vow to the Lord. I'll I'll say it again. Here's what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to become a Christian. The master of the feast is given the good wine by the servants. He is pleased, and he calls the bridegroom over, and he gives him the credit for what Jesus did. That's what it means to be a Christian, that we, the failures, get credit for what Jesus did. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died, and now we get what he deserves. That's the gospel. Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a... a, um, a paraphrase of the Bible in, in, in something called the message. And he, he wrote a paraphrase of Romans chapter 3. I'd like to read it to you. I love it. It just says the gospel so, so clearly, so simply. He says this, Basically, all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, start out in identical conditions, which is to say that we all start out as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There is nobody living right, not even one. It's clear enough, isn't it? That we're sinners, every one of us, in the same sinking boat with everybody else. But in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to about or witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. Since we have compiled this long and sorry record of sinners and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess that we are in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be, and he did it by the means of Jesus Christ. Friends, restitution... Payment must be made for your sins. Justice must be paid. The wages, the Bible says, the wages for your sin is death. But Jesus Christ came to this earth. He took on flesh so that he could die in your place, so that justice could be paid. And now he offers grace. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what he's done. He offers you grace. If you would just receive the forgiveness that he has acquired by his blood, if you would accept him as your substitute, he's not going to put himself in that place. He will not force himself upon you. You know that. He won't force himself upon you, but he offers to take your place, to be your substitute. If you would accept him as your substitute, he will come into your life and he will forgive you and he will heal you and he will build you up. He will make you new. He will, he will come into your life and he will dwell with you and he will help you live for him from this day forward and experience this joy that we've been talking about all morning. If you don't know Jesus, say yes to him today. Say yes today. For those of you in here who are walking with Jesus, I think there's one more thing that we can pull out of this. And we'll close with this. Um, We see Mary in this story, the mother of Jesus, come to Jesus with a very reasonable request, right? It's a reasonable request. 
And he responds in an interesting way, right? A little gruff, right? A little confusing, a little cryptic, if you will. Um, he, he, he responds to her in a way that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And then he tells his servants to do something really bizarre, like go fill you know, the purification jars with water. Which, by the way, I don't think I mentioned this. You don't drink out of purification jars. You're not supposed to do that. Jews didn't do that. So think about how confusing that whole scene was for everybody watching. Okay? Think about what Mary must have been thinking. She's thinking, Jesus, you just spoke pretty gruffly to me, your mother. Um, you, you're saying all these confusing things about dying. You're telling servants to go fill up purification jars with water. What in the world does this have to do with getting some wine for this party? This doesn't make any sense. Welcome, friends, to the Christian life. Right? If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you are going to learn very quickly that this is often how the Christian life feels, how it often looks. You're going to present your requests to God, very reasonable request. You're going to present your needs to God, and then he's going to communicate some things that don't make a whole lot of sense. He's going to do some things that don't make a whole lot of sense. And in that moment, you have a choice. Just like Mary had a choice. You can respond in a couple of different ways. It would have been somewhat understandable if, G- if Mary would have walked off in a huff. If she would have walked off a little upset and frustrated at her son, right? Why are you talking to me like that? You're not making any sense. You're not listening to me. After all I've done for you, right? It, it, it would have made sense if Mary would have walked off frustrated and upset, but she didn't, did she? What did she say? She laid the request before him. And then she, she, she heard what he had to say, and then she turned to everybody around and she said, do anything he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever seems best to him, we give him complete obedience. Do you hear that? Whatever seems best to him, we, we obey him completely. Do whatever he tells you to do. We follow the example of Mary. When things do not make sense, we trust him. We trust him and we obey him. Um, I, one thing I love, I'm just, I'll just mention it. Uh, I love that we don't just have to lay the big things before Jesus. I love that, that Jesus' first sign came. His first sign was wiping the egg off of the face of two disorganized teenagers. Okay? Uh, he, he fixed the catering disaster. That was his first, that was his first thing. Uh, do, you, do you understand? We can lay the big and the small at his feet. He could have easily said to his mom and those around him, don't you know I'm, word, I'm the word become flesh? I am the incarnate son of God. I've got bigger things to worry about like saving, your sin, you know, saving the world. Okay, I've, I've got bigger things to worry about. But he doesn't. He takes his divine power, he takes his precious time, and he deals with a catering disaster. If Jesus Christ comes into your life, please hear me. If Jesus Christ comes into your life with that kind of divine, ultimate, omnipotent power, yet with that kind of detailed love and care, what in the world are you so afraid of? What in the world are you so afraid of? If he comes with that kind of power and that kind of detailed love for you, in the big and the small, why are you so afraid? Consider the first two points of this message. Jesus comes. He came to bring limitless all-satisfying, everlasting joy. And he accomplished it through pain and suffering and sacrifice and power. Right? 
If he is that passionately committed to his glory and your good and your joy, and he is willing to flex his power and endure this uh, unfathomable pain and sacrifice, then why do you question him, even when things don't make sense? Why do you question him? Why do you walk through life with fear and trepidation and doubt? He has already proven, he has proven that he is for you and that he is trustworthy. So when things are confusing, when things don't make sense, when you, when you we can't put all the pieces together, you don't understand what God is doing, we follow the example of Mary and we say, do whatever he tells you to do. We leave it in his court. He'll do what he deems best and we obey. We remember Paul's words in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Memorize that verse this week. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We trust him even when things don't make sense. We present our requests to the Lord. We humble ourselves before him. No, we, we, we trust him with the outcome, knowing that it will ultimately be for our joy, for our good, and for his glory. Amen? Let's pray.